It's a tricky portion of scripture. So, um, yeah, let's ask for God's help with it. And I'm going to focus mainly on chapter 7, which I think is the trickier chapter than chapter 8. Um, and then just allude or, or point to chapter 8, um, which is more familiar to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the really clear and simple parts of your word. We also thank you for the more complex, uh, deeper um, parts of your word that lead us to think and to explore and to wonder. And with that wondering too can give us an expanded sense of you. We do pray that would happen this morning, that our, our awareness of your glory might increase. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I lived near Armadale, uh, I would sometimes fly back and forth from Sydney to Armadale. And often you can tell who's from Armadale and who's from Sydney by how chatty they are on the plane and how ready they are to, to get to know you. Um, one flight in particular, I had a really friendly farmer that I sat next to called John, and he was up for a chat, and so chat we did for the next hour, hour and 20. Uh, the flight got a bit turbulent. Uh, John said early on, I don't really like flying, I get nervous on planes. Um, do you think we're going to be all right? Do you think we're going to be all right? Do you think we're going to be all right? After a while, I thought I need to try to assure John, and so I said, John, actually, I used to fly airplanes a bit. Um, this is nothing. It's a bit turbulent. We're going to be fine. Oh, how good, he said. I feel so much safer now that I know I'm sitting next to a pilot. That's wonderful. <laughs> a few minutes later in the conversation, he told me about a problem he was thinking about. He said, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's on my mind. It's my daughter. She lives in Sydney, but she wants to get married in Armadale. But the Catholic, our, our Catholic priest won't do it because she's out of area and, and we don't know what to do. I thought about it and I said, well, as it happens, John, I'm a minister. Maybe I could help you with, with that problem. John couldn't believe it. He was having the best flight. I thought I was safe sitting next to a pilot, but now I'm, I found out I'm sitting next to a priest pilot. How much better could it get? Well, Hebrews 7 and 8 says it can get a whole lot better than what John experienced with me sitting next to him on the plane. Uh, though we can feel very much alone in our mess or afraid, though life can seem out of control, as Christians, we don't need to think that way one moment longer if we're thinking that way. As the hymn puts it, what a friend we have in Jesus when it says, oh, what needless pain we bear. The God who made our souls for himself meets our souls with himself. And so exercise and meditation and the gym and mindfulness and friendships and consultations can all be good things to help us cope with life. But only he truly works. Only he will truly meet you. Armadale John wanted a priest. Even though God himself offers to be that priest directly for John. And so I wonder, imagine your life if you could live it with that immediate, constant access to the goodness and power of God himself, how would that life differ from the version of life you might be currently living? Now, I don't really relate very well to the idea of priests. I've never had a priest, being a Protestant. But I do love the story of Hannah. And Hannah's story helps me to understand how a priest could really help me. 
She goes to the priest Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Our opening verse was part of her prayer this morning. And through the priest, God gives her great comfort in her distress. And God so assures her that he has heard her through this priest that she names her son Samuel, meaning heard by God. He's heard me. And she goes home from the temple, a different woman from the woman who went to the temple. So I found this passage very helpful this week as someone not familiar with the idea of priests to try to get my head around the value of Jesus being a priest. I've started more consciously thinking of him as my priest, my go-to person when there are worries or fears or when there's gratitude to express. The one I'm learning to call on from 3.15 at 3.15 in the morning when I've woken up and I have worries on my mind are the one I go to when I'm walking around Dremoyne, just talking to him, my priest. The one I go to after losing patience with my kids and regretting that I did. Or when worrying about tasks left undone. Lord Jesus, I come to you again. The one I can approach. The one who understands a human like me. And though we're going to look more at Hebrews 7 than chapter 8, both chapters help us to draw near to this inexhaustible person who offers comfort and who offers help. The real question I think these chapters are answering is, why is it so good to have a priest named Jesus? Why is it so good to have a priest named Jesus? And the first thing it says about this is because Jesus is the priest of all priests. In Sunday school, I used to sing as a child, what a friend we have in Jesus. But I had no idea how good a friend he would become for me in the years ahead. So let's meet the royal priest Melchizedek, first of all, who is a teaching aid for us to understand Jesus, put there in Scripture for us. And we'll do that by picking up from the last verse of Hebrews 6. In verse 20 there it says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, if you're wondering who on earth is Melchizedek, where have I been the last ten years as a Christian, don't be too embarrassed. Uh, Although he's mentioned a big eight times here in Hebrews, he only makes two other small appearances in the rest of the whole Bible. Once way back in Genesis 14 written around 1400 BC. And then he makes another verse appearance 400 years later in Psalm 110. And then he waits for another 1100 years before his quiet significance emerges here in Hebrews. So don't beat yourself up if you're not a Melchizedek expert. I think that's helpful to know. But the gist of his contribution is this. In these early part of the verses, you would expect Abram, to make an offering to those who are above him. That's where offerings are normally given, upward. But in Genesis 14, Father Abraham, he will become the father, the figurehead over Israel, makes an offering to someone who is not an Israelite priest. Um, Priesthood in Israel hadn't begun yet. Israel didn't even yet exist. Hebrews 7 retells the story for us. So let's pick it up there in verse 2. 
First, the name Melchizedek, Melech meaning king, and Sadik meaning righteousness, so the king of righteousness. First, the name Melchizedek, king of righteousness, means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem. So the word shalom, um, Jerusalem, the, the king of Salem means king of peace. So this mysterious figure has some really lofty names in a culture that values the meaning of names, much more than a Bob or a Susan. Uh, no offence, we've got a, Su- got a Susie. <laughs> no offence to any name in particular. We don't put a lot of weight on names. But here, king of righteousness, king of peace, who is this guy? They're names, you, they're upward names, Godward names. But there's more to him. Look at verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Forever. That is, I think, his birth isn't mentioned, his death isn't mentioned. It's not to say that he, he didn't die. It's just that we have no record of his death and he, he's kind of there and then he comes again in Psalm 110, but we don't know where he's gone. We might have thought of Israel's priests as pretty special. But this guy is a king with the lofty, godlike names. And he's a priest. Israel had kings and they had priests, but they didn't have people who were both kings and priests at once in the one person. He's a priest of a higher order. You might say the highest order. And this reminds me of a scene from Crocodile Dundee, would you believe? A local New Yorker pulls out a flick knife on the Aussie um, Bushman, whatever you call him, from Kakadu. He's got a crocodile skin jacket. Mick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. That's not a knife. That's a knife with his big bush knife hunting knife. It seems in the early church, some of the Jews were tempted to go back to Judaism. There could have been less persecution, more for the Christians than for the Jews. Let's just go back to Judaism. It was working all right to hold on to the Jewish symbol of temple and priests. Hebrews is saying, they're not priests. This is a priest. This is a priest. Look at him. And he points upwards from Israel's priests to a higher order of priests, from regulation priests to this Melchizedek. Why? Because by gazing upwards, we're looking right into the place. Sorry, by by gazing upwards, we're looking in the right place to understand the ultimate king-priest who blows Melchizedek even out of the water. The royal priest Jesus, the king priest Jesus was going to come. Let's try to get our heads around God's spectacular plan from verse 4. Just think how great he, Melchizedek, was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder, an offering, a tithe. And verse 6, unlike Israel's priests who came from the tribe of Levi, this man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. A non-Levite priest? Yes, an order of priests held in reserve, introduced before all the others, not just Israel's priest, he's a more universal priest, 
a timeless priest, a superior priest, a priesthood that was always destined to reemerge, to salvage priesthood, not if, but when Israel's priesthood had turned to ashes. And yet, in God's kindness, I, I take it the reason we don't hear a lot more through the Old Testament of this priesthood is it would have been a great distraction, wouldn't it? To know that there's a greater, higher priesthood than the priests they're meant to go to for their sins and for their ritual. Why is this royal priest there in Genesis 14, however? Why is this seed sown that's going to turn into a great plant in the back rooms? Well, he's there because God, God's plans before Israel were always bigger than Israel. He's the creator of the whole world, not just one nation. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Christianity is not just another world religion, but rather Christianity is the reason for the world's existence. God had a very big agenda when bringing Israel together. Judaism existed to give birth to the world's royal priest, the mediator of mediators between God and humanity a king of righteousness and a king of peace, of a higher order. Hebrews is saying, and even Genesis is saying, watch this space. To understand Jesus, we need to think bigger, more globally than Israel, more permanently and heavenly than Israel's frail priests and temporal rituals. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek shows the promise that's going to lead to the reality. But it's all wonderfully tucked into our scriptures for later reading pleasure in churches like ours that exist after Christ's coming. And so we've met then the royal priest Melchizedek. In the second part of the passage, Hebrews now wants us to more deliberately join the dots between this mysterious figure and Jesus himself. The second point in your outline there, Melchizedek exist to help us appreciate Jesus. And when I was a young boy, we used to own a, I was going to say an old Ford Fairmont. It wasn't that old at the time. It is now, if it's, if it's around. But I remember a couple of occasions where we lost the key. Keys used to get stuck or lost, I think, more often than they do now. Um, you could lock it. As, there were four boys in our family, so easy for a kid to lock the door back then and, and shut it than it is now with the beepers, I think. But I remember watching in awe as we thought, what are we going to do? We've lost the key. I'm a young boy watching on. I remember watching in awe as I was directed around to the big chrome bumper bar. And under that chrome bumper bar was a little metal box magnetically stuck to the bumper. I don't know if you've seen it. Perhaps you have. You slide back the lid of that little box and inside is a spare key the very thing we needed to get into our car. Wonder of wonders, I was thinking as a young boy. That's a genius, a masterstroke. Now, that key was not there so much if we got locked out, but for when we got locked out. Someone, I thought, knew this would happen. And someone even planned a way out. And something like that is happening in the Bible. When the B-grade priests lose their way, the, king, the true king of righteousness will say, I am the way. When the B-grade grade priests forget their lines, our priest 
Jesus enters the stage and speaks so clearly words of truth. When the B-grade priests lose access to God, a priest will come of such royalty, well, he will be God. Now, that's a wonder of wonders. That's genius. That's a masterstroke involving mind-boggling historical proportions and foreknowledge. What a friend we have in Jesus. The great answer to the brokenness of Israel's priests. That's what the writer is getting at, I think, in verses 11 to 16. And we pick up again in verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. One who will say, I am the resurrection and the life. For it is declared, verse 17, in Psalm 110, and later, this is sworn by the Father to the Son. This is, this is an oath. These are big words between the persons of God here. The Father declaring to the Son, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Here we have the privilege of hearing that inner counsel in the, the persons of the Trinity, the office of the Son given by the Father a thousand years before he would come. And we get to hear this declaration And now we know what it means. Verse 18 says, The former regulation, that is the B-grade law and priesthood, is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced, by which, notice here's the benefit, here's where it touches us, by which we draw near to God. This hope we have, this confidence by which we draw near to God, we know the way to him. Now, perhaps you can imagine the headline of a local newspaper. It's doing some stories on locals, and it follows you around for a couple of weeks. And it follows you just as you grasp this truth and learn to grasp it more and more. Busy mum learns to hope daily in Jesus. What would that story look like? Lonely man finds solace in the Lord. Or the rags to riches story in the paper. Life begins again. Workaholic draws near to Jesus before it's too late. What would that look like for you to draw near to him? You know, once I went to, along to the Deputy Prime Minister's house in Canberra. Sounds a bit cliche, but we went along and had a barbie. And he cooked lamb on the barbie. And I felt pretty privileged to be there. And while I'm boasting, my friend's friend is a close acquaintance of the Prime Minister's family. Now that's all very nice. But really, compared to what God is saying here, talk about having a friend in the right places. God himself offering the Johns of Armadale of this world full 24-7 access directly to the risen Lord Jesus as personal priest. A priest not only whose power and resources are absolute, 
but a priest rightly known for his mercy and his compassion, his readiness to accept someone just like you. Surely someone like that, this God we know, is a worthy go-to for the rest of our days. And you might decide to resolve this very day, before you go to bed tonight, that you will, with his help, increasingly draw near to him, as verse 19 encourages us. That your life will become less worried and less frantic and will become more like a prayer. That you'll develop a new poise, a new confidence, a new steadiness of joy, wisdom, optimism. Yes, you start living as one who knows the Lord is very near. But this is no fair-weather friend. No, in verses 22 to 28, in the next section there, we see that our royal priest Jesus is permanently, perfectly effective. Look from verse 24 with me. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's what Jesus is doing now. He's living to intercede for you. What great news that is. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful invitation. Jesus is not only better, but we now have a far better living arrangement as well with God. And chapter 8, if you want to read that perhaps this afternoon, explains that new covenant, that new way of relating with God that's superior to the Old Testament way. The Holy Spirit now in our minds and in our hearts, giving us a desire to know and love and follow and speak to and listen to God. So he's perfect and he's permanent as our way to God. Our go-to is our go-between. He's always interceding for us. But perhaps some of us wonder, can we really expect to live in glory with a perfect God? We're so fallen so limited, so fickle in affection and loyalty and maturity. Or when we know our problems are self-inflicted, largely our own doing, where does Jesus stand on the mess I make through my own mistakes? I can't blame the world for this one, my selfishness or my sin. Personally or in our family, we're our own worst enemy. Well, how can I expect Jesus to help me and us when we keep living against his ways? Can we come to a high priest in that situation? Well, yes, he's opposed to sin. Yes, he's perfect. But yes, he's also perfect for us. Look at verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, yes, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The work has been finished. And sometimes when I'm driving, and I'm pretty sure I know the way, but I've got Ashley next to me, I'll say, right turn here, Ash. And she'll say, yep, right turn here. And when there's something stressful going on or there are deadlines to meet, things I'm not prepared for tomorrow or the next day, 
or it's just very busy, I'll say something similar to Ash. Suspecting the answer, but wanting to hear her say it. Ash, is everything going to be okay, do you think? Yeah, Dave, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. How much better when we take that question to our royal priest, Jesus? Is everything going to be okay, Jesus? He not only comforts us with such words, telling us everything's going to be okay, but his words are backed up with eternal power. Everything's going to be okay. Draw near to me. Trust me. I've got you. Wonderful words in a broken world. Hannah's priest was weak. Your priest is wonderfully strong. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grief to bear. Well, let's pray to him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our King of Righteousness, King of Peace, our Royal Priest, may our resolve be this day that we draw nearer and nearer to you with our lives. And Lord, in our weakness, take our resolve, our weak resolve, and multiply it and sustain it and supplement it and use it to do just that to be those who love and trust and draw near you and so have the peace and joy and newness of life that you intend for us. For we ask as those privileged to bear your name. Amen.